Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is Dr. Cheryl Logan, the superintendent of Omaha Public Schools. Dr. Cheryl Logan began her position as superintendent of Omaha Public Schools on July 1st, 2018. Dr. Logan comes to OPS from the school district of Philadelphia in Pennsylvania, where she served as chief academic officer, responsible for the academic achievement of more than 135,000 students. Dr. Logan has spent her career in education, working in school districts with large immigrant populations from around the world, including students from significant English language learner populations. Dr. Logan is fluent in Spanish and holds a doctorate of education degree from the University of Pennsylvania. Dr. Logan, thank you for being on the show. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Beyond Omar Public Schools, what do you think are the broader national issues affecting education today? I think the probably the most salient is the rapidly changing uh, demographics and the fact that school populations are shrinking in some areas and growing very rapidly in some. So I was speaking with a uh, colleague last week, and he was sharing with me that they're going to build, I think it's 70, 70 schools in Texas over the next uh, year or 18 months. And I thought, wow, that's a lot of little kids. And, um, you know, their school population, uh, school age population is larger than the population of several states. And I think that that's that's uh, an issue that um, will impact how education is approached. Um, it's not unlike uh, Omaha, but it's a little bit, um, actually quite a bit larger. So I think that that's probably one of the um, issues. And then the willingness to allocate the resources that are needed because the children that are receiving the resources don't necessarily look like the allocators. And I think that those are going to be some of the most pressing. So where's the urgency? So in your own home, you, you always have urgency around your own children. They, they are, they're your own flesh and blood and they, they look like you. And I think, um, how do you, when you're thinking about a policymaker who has that responsibility on a broader scale, they also have to apply that thinking to the children that they uh, are fortunate enough to serve. Uh, how will they use their policymaking to make the best policies uh, to serve them well? I think it's interesting to think about the shifting dynamics of who our kids are and who they're going to be, not least because I can't name the fact, but it's something along the lines of more languages are spoken in Omaha public schools than are spoken in school districts on the coast, for example, Mm -hmm. which I think is surprising to many people. But it also indicates what you're talking about, which is the nature of who and how they identify our children will be in 10 years, 20 years time Mm -hmm. is not going to be the same. It's it's really dynamic. And what does that mean for for our education across across the region? Well, I think it, um, some of the approaches and the sensitivities uh, about sensibilities may have to change. But 
Some things will always be the same. We will always teach little children how to read. That's never going to change. We're always going to do that. We're always going to be concerned with numeracy of little children, their number sense. Um, and I think that those things are the same. So I think uh, while there will be some need for some divergent approaches, some things are always going to be the same. And I think um, as I stated a little bit earlier, for policymakers, when you we talk about addressing the needs uh, of a changing demographic, on while we're saying addressing the the needs of a changing demographics, we also have to um, ad- address the things that are always going to be the same. And the reason that I say that, um, and I think it's important for policymakers, I think we always bring things back to our own personal context. And it will be important for them to treat these little people like they're their own children and make policies like they're their own. And if they do that, we're going to be in great shape. Um, and if they don't do that, the children will, our young people will, um, will not be as successful. Uh, we all know we treat our, we treat our own, we put our own oxygen mask on first. And it's kind of the same thing. So we're recording this the week before the midterm elections, and this will air after those elections. Mm -hmm. But this isn't necessarily a comment about the results of Mm -hmm. those midterms, whatever they happen to be. But the National Education Association has uh, told us that there are many, many more teachers running for elected offices across the country, something like nearly 1,500 are running. Um, Most of them are women. And I think something like two thirds lean left, one third lean right, but they're running because obviously mm-hmm. teachers have been mobilized. And the reason why I raise that is because you're talking about policymakers. Mm-hmm. And it seems interesting to me that we might see more policymakers who actually have an education background. And I don't know if you have a feeling about the need for more educators in these elected positions. I think that it's something that could be helpful. Uh, having folks who understand what it's like to be on in the trenches, so to speak, to participate in a different way um, as policymakers. I think that that's intriguing to me. The fact that they're women uh, doesn't surprise me because in a profession that's uh, dominated by women, you would that would be that would be what you would if you if it was the reverse, that would be really like very odd. And I, I think that uh, as much as we will benefit from their perspective as teachers, we will also uh, benefit from their perspective as women. 
and uh, uh, the way that they experience the world, the way they experience young people uh, as students in that world, as women. So I think that there's a lot of value add to that, uh, regardless of where they fall on the political spectrum. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm very excited about the opportunity to have teachers um, and administrators. And, you know, we have a superintendent in another state who became a, a senator. People who enter education are typically very civic minded. They are purpose driven. And so the decision for them to seek elected office, especially under the compelling national context that we're in right now, is not some, is something that, um, I would, I'm glad and I probably would expect. And I'm, 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 I'm tickled about it. And I'm looking forward to, uh, hearing about the election results and then seeing the policies that are informed by their experience. I don't know this data point, mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm curious if you know how many female superintendents there are uh, in the country. Well, I will tell you, I don't know how many there are, but um, what I will can tell you is that recently I was invited to a summit of um, women's uh, superintendents and I was uh, unable to go because we had a crisis in our, in our district and uh, with our Yale Park community and our, our young people there. And I was excited because I said, well, there's enough to actually have a summit. <laughs> so I was invited to that in Chicago in late September. And uh, although I wasn't able to go, I was able to connect with some of those folks and just uh, how, um, and I just recently saw a summit, another at a conference that I was able to attend over the weekend and how, uh, the approach might have to be a little bit different. The fact that you are a public figure and, um, how public figures have to approach their, uh, public work and sometimes, um, how it intrudes into their, uh, private, um, life, I think is different for, uh, women. And, um, yeah, I think it's something that's uh, kind of a cool thing. Yeah. One of the things that when I go to superintendents conferences or just in a superintendents meeting here in the metro, you know, I'm one of uh, there's there's myself and D.C. West and uh, Council Bluffs. And then there are 11 other people, you know, that and all fine, fine people and fine superintendents. It's, you know, it's, it's part of it, uh, for me. Also, I'm a person of color. So that certainly is something that sticks out, uh, in the, in the metro. Uh, and I think adds a layer of, um, intrigue, probably for people on the outside more than myself, because I've lived in this body all my life and I'm very comfortable and happy in it and, uh, approach my work the only way I know, know how to do that. But I think that that is another layer that, uh, of my social identity that is, very important to people uh, for a variety of reasons and um, likely informs some of the way that I think about and approach uh, the world and my work. So I hadn't necessarily planned to jump ahead to that, but mm-hmm. I can't resist the segue. Okay. <laughs> um, you, you talk about being in this noted mm-hmm. and notable position, mm-hmm. uh, being uh, a woman of color mm-hmm. and how that might be uh, a scenario of intrigue and interest to, yeah. to some for a variety of reasons. Um, I, I want to invite you to maybe unpack some of those reasons and how it may be informative to some. I think the opportunity for um, a woman of color to be a superintendent uh, here in Omaha is 
intriguing for a lot of different reasons, mostly that Omaha has a very complex racial history. Um, and some of that has played out in schools. And so for many people, I know the night that I was selected and I walked in the room for my interview. And when I walked in and, you know, I've been been doing things for a day and a half. And I when I walked in that room and I had a few minutes prior to that, I had been where people were waiting to meet me. And and that was cool. And uh, and people lined up and I thought, wow, that's wow. I, you know, who, who lines up to meet, you know, a, a candidate for to be the superintendent? And I didn't understand it until I walked in that room and I saw the people sitting there and I realized that they were sitting there for all kinds of reasons, none that really had to do with me, but had to do with the opportunity that I was going to sit in that seat and interview. And it's not lost on me. And I see that often uh, being female. Uh, when I go to schools and I meet, you know, I meet teachers. And again, as we all know, they're overwhelmingly female. They're excited just because, you know, we're girls <laughs> and they, uh, you know, the opportunity and I look at them and, you know, we, I, I, I see how they see themselves in my opportunity and it's cool. It's really, really cool. Uh, because, um, there have been many people who have come who have been around before me who have not had the opportunity and have deserved the opportunity or at least the opportunity to sit in the seat and interview um, as equals uh, among their male colleagues. And that part, ex- that is very exciting um, for me. And really, that's one of the most rewarding things um, besides little children who look up at me and are just tickled uh, seeing uh, my colleagues Uh, my teacher colleagues uh, be excited for me and realize that I understand their walk in a way that maybe others didn't is is very cool. Let's not pretend this is going to be an easy job. So what do, you, what do you think are the challenges that are going to face you as the years unfold? I think 
the challenges are the fiscal, there's obviously the fiscal challenges. Those are the most obvious fiscal challenges. And I think that the will to educate children who live in an urban environment at the level that they need and deserve to be educated and maintaining leadership of that will by everyone who is responsible for that. It's me, it's my team, it's the custodian, it's their teachers, it's their school leaders, it's the person who cuts the grass. <laughs> and I think that that's the, the challenge because that's something that I always, that's the, the urgency I've always had in my work. And, you know, leading, you know, almost 9,000 people and expecting them to have that same level of urgency. And that is my expectation is uh, daunting and has to be strategic. And I have to be prepared for valleys as well as mountaintops because I have to lead people through through those valleys and they are inevitable in human in the human condition. Those are the biggest the biggest challenges. I've been leading for a long time now at this point. I realized the other day I've been leading for 18 years uh, in some way. Uh, and I enjoy it. I really do. I, I, I really, I really like it. I like being able to impact people or make people feel better about their or make sure children get what they need, you know, make the tough decisions. Uh, sometimes I'm not saying that they, they don't keep me up at night every once in a while, but you know, it's something that I do actually, um, enjoy. And I think that those are the things that are, that, you know, I think about what's daunting ahead of me. It's that. Uh, leadership comes at great personal expense to anybody who chooses to, to lead. And we all lead in some ways. And we know that even if your job is not a leader, when you've been called on to lead, it has taken some sort of toll, uh, on you. For me, it's, um, you know, a challenge I've taken on. I'm excited about, but I don't kid myself into knowing that there will be those valleys. And while, you know, people send me cute little notes and stuff now, you know, once I make that, you know, I've actually made a couple of tough decisions um, and they've gone OK, you know, but I realize I'm in a honeymoon phase and, uh, you know, I'm sorry as I'm concerned, the honeymoon can last forever, uh, but I'm realistic to know that it won't. And um, I'm going to hold myself more accountable than any body or anything or entity could hold me accountable. And uh, and that makes me really comfortable in terms of knowing um, the task ahead. I don't want to focus on gender or race as mm -hmm. part of our conversation sure, yeah, because yeah. it's 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 too narrow. Yes. <laughs> that said, we mm -hmm. just to continue that maybe into mm -hmm. more conversation around education. Mm -hmm. We know that there are maybe gender disparities around how education is is mm -hmm. maybe received by mm -hmm. students and sure. maybe delivered from mm -hmm. in terms of policy, so on and so forth. And we also know there are racial disparities too. Mm -hmm. And Omaha is no different to many communities around sure. the country that face those. So as a word, you talked about that to some degree. We know that Omaha mm -hmm. has those challenges. And I'm wondering how you're thinking about focusing on those as we go forward. Well, I, I'm thinking about focusing them on them in terms of opportunity. So if you look at, uh, you look at uh, statistics and or data, and you see who has opportunity. I want those to be consistent with how the kids are represented in the overall demographic. So that's, it's very simplistic for me. And my job is to make sure that the policy implementers are, are feeling equally about that and are implementing policy, uh, in that way. 
Uh, I think that's something that's that's a challenge for a superintendent if they're if they landed on a spaceship. <laughs> that's their job. And so I'm no different. And I happen to maybe, you know, represent that, you know, for many people. Um, I also represent uh, uh, a person from a generation where both my parents were college educated in the 1950s. That is very odd for a person who looks like me and also informs uh, my practice and who I am as an individual and also makes me, could make me less accessible to, to some and more accessible to others. So I think, you know, our um, stance on equity and our personal experience sometimes, uh, uh, and they intersect and mine is no different. It's just that my, um, some, some, some would think, some will think that my, my actual background in terms of education and opportunity doesn't necessarily intersect with how people generalize my social identity. Yeah. You've talked about going into a room and there were these people sure. uh, wanting to see you, this kind of thing. And I just have to ask, do, is, is there a greater risk for you to let these people down with just like completely unrealistic expectations of you? Well, I think that we all, you know, there's a very famous researcher who uh, uh, talked about the great man theory. And uh, it's really, it's, it's, not, it's gender nonspecific, really, although they labeled it great man theory. And there's always that, you know, we always want our leaders to be perfect and they're human and imperfect and uh, messy and complex and goofy. And um, sometimes they're good and sometimes they're not as. And I realize that about myself. I talk about myself. I'm so very, I can be very self-effacing and I know my flaws better than anybody. If you sit down to point out 10 of them, I'll point out 15. And I think that that's a way to approach the work so that, that people are not thinking about that. I say often to audiences where I have an opportunity to speak that, you know, who are very excited about me for all the reasons you just talked about because of my social identity or what I represent and what my opportunity represents. And one of the things I say to them is that I see them, they're so excited, but when I make a mistake or when I fall down and skin my knee, are you going to put a bandage on or are you going to kick me in the shin? And I think that that's what, uh, that you, that leaders have to always uh, make themselves human, maybe to even overly do so, so that, that people are not expecting that. And you have to ask for help too. So I am the first, I'll ask you for help because, um, I think that a great strength in the best leaders that I've had an opportunity and um, honor to observe is that they asked for help. And they did so before things got so bad that the help was not going to be useful. And I think that that's what you, that's what you do. You depend on the people around you uh, to help you. There are many people here. You know, I've had a smooth entry. I was at the Council of Great City Schools last week, and that's people were talking about that smooth, the smooth entry Nationally, we're talking about my smooth entry in here to Omaha. And it wasn't, it was precise. It wasn't smooth. It was really precise in that it was very planned. It was very thoughtful. There were many people who helped me. I did not do it on my own because if I had, I can tell you about 10 mistakes I would have made where people said, no, 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 let's not do that. And I think that, um, that that's the way for me, that's the way that I'm going to get around it. I'm going to make a mistake. That's just part of, um, a human condition. And I'm, I'm going to, um, 
hopefully, and I've talked to people too about, if you see a landmine, don't let me step on it. I need all my fingers and toes really, really bad. So if you see one, I don't care who you are. You don't have to be somebody who works with me or um, if you're my neighbor and you know a landmine because you know some something that is going on that you want me to know or you think I should know, then tell me, you know, don't tell me after, you know, I was going to tell you. Uh, that's really not very helpful. I'd rather have you not say anything. But I think that that's, that's how we, and if, and for me, it's like, this is not about me being successful. This is about almost 54,000 young people being successful. And if we stay, uh, focused on that, because I, I mean, I, you know, I've, I've, I'm, I'm having a good career. You know, I've got a great education and I've had a lot of wonderful experiences. There's really not probably anything, you know, unless I do something weird, you know, that that's going to mess that up, you know. So, okay, that's all fine and good. But, you know, my job is to make sure that the young people and our the children here get what they need and the people who are around me who want to help me, I hope that their help is for them and I am I am the conduit you know, to making sure that things happen for them. That's just the way I approach. I'm so over myself. I, like I said, I'm super flawed, know my flaws. I'm looking very much, very forward to hopefully ma- making things better through the people that work the most directly with young people. You are listening to Lives. We'll be back after the break. I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives. My guest today is Dr. Cheryl Logan, the superintendent of Omaha Public Schools. So I read at the top of the show a fairly standard in terms of what one would expect bio. And you said that your personal bio would be Dr. Cheryl Logan human. You've talked about leadership and and the toll it can take on someone. You've also, I feel like, demonstrated a degree of confidence and self-assurance simultaneously matched with a degree of self-awareness and humility that for me make the best leaders, the, the combination of those attributes. All of this starts to come together and it reminds me of something that I read about you which is that some of your volunteer experience included working in a hospice care center, which is not 
I think the typical thing that many people would volunteer towards is certainly not comfortable. It's a hard, I would imagine, a hard thing to do. So I just want to ask you to talk about that just a little bit, your service outside of education, because I think that shows a little bit more of how you've shaped yourself in terms of values and and your view of the world. Well, on January the 11th, 2004, I signed my mother into hospice. My father was, you know, living, our parents were married, my father was living, and I have four siblings, and nobody else could do it. My mother was an angel. She was. And she said to us on that day that she was ready, and that, so we, somebody had to sign her in, it was my turn. So, signed her in. And, you know, we at that point wanted to know, like, how long does mom, does our mom have? And they said, well, she's probably will be gone in a week. And my mother lived for two months and 17 days in, in home hospice. She wanted to be at home. Her sisters came uh, from Arkansas and from Los Angeles to care for her. You know, my dad was there. We have a large family. So we were all like, you know, she. there was always something there, always something good to eat, too, as I recall. And I watched those hospice workers comfort her. And I said, when this is over, I'm going to do that. So I waited. They won't let you do it for a few years. I can't remember. It might have been five. I'm trying to think when I'd signed up. It might have been 2008. 2008. She died in 2004 on uh, St. Patrick's Day. And she, she just left the world in a peaceful way. She wasn't ready. She was young, 68 years old. And so I, I promised I would. So I went and signed up and did the hospice training. It is intense. It's so intense. I thought to myself, man, this is like a job. <laughs> it was really intense. And so then I had my first patients. So I had my first patient was Margaret. And I was asked to visit Margaret on Thanksgiving. My daughter was just home from college. She and I on Thanksgiving, I'm like, I got to run and, you know, do my little hospice volunteering. And my daughter, who's got a little spoiled, was not exactly happy about that. And I was gone maybe an hour and a half. And I went and visited Margaret and... The thing that I didn't want her to know was that it was Thanksgiving. And she had in-stage Parkinson's. I remember everything everything about her, everything about that room, everything about how it smelled, how it looked, and her fur coat in the closet, <laughs> which she wanted me to, to check to make sure that her roommate hadn't taken it. So, and she was in a in a facility. And I was mad because she has two daughters and they had decided to have Thanksgiving before the holiday with her but not on the holiday so they could be with their families, which I thought was, your mother's going to not be here for the following one. So I was mad about that, but I was happy to be with Margaret. So she asked me to change her, to pull the covers up or fix the cover. And I said, okay, you know, sure. And so I did it and I looked at her and I said, is that okay? And she looks up at me and says, well, that's the best you can do. (laughs) I don't know. It was so funny. It's so funny to this day, the way she looked at me. And so anyway, she had her meal. I, I fed her her meal because she needed to be fed. And 
before and I, I left, she took my hand and she said, thank you, Cheryl. Happy Thanksgiving. And I went to my car and I cried for about 15 minutes on the way home. And I, I was so excited about seeing her the next time. And I will tell you that hospice volunteering is one of the most peaceful times. It's a very intimate time in someone's life, no different from the birthing process. It's just that they have a history. Although it may seem as though it was, it could be something that was very sad, I never found it sad. I connected with all of my patients. I never attended any funerals, although I was asked to go to all of them. In one instance, I had a young, I only had one young patient. She was 35 and uh, her heart had given out. Her mom had come. I'm, I'm Spanish speaking. They assigned me because her mom had come from Panama, didn't speak English. And I was to ta- take her to the grocery on Sunday. And when she died, when uh, her daughter passed, she called me. I was at work screaming. She called me before anyone else. I, I'm a stranger. I mean, I'm a, I'm a complete stranger. She's from 4,000 miles away or 3,000 miles away from here. And, um, uh, and I had to tell, I had to tell her, I can't, I can't come. I'm at work. Um, and I'm, I'm glad that she's at peace. And I know I can't come to the funeral. And, uh, but I realized how much peace I had given her and how much peace that I had, she had given me. But, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a, it was a labor of love. Um, I just ended because I moved to Philadelphia and um, I realized too, probably at the end that I probably my five years was probably enough because I, you do get attached to families. They get very attached uh, to you. Uh, but I will say it was the most peaceful time of my week spending that time. I did it about three hours a week, sometimes a little bit more on Saturday if I had some, some time, uh, but very peaceful. I got a lot back from it, much more than I ever, than I gave you know, I recommend it for people that uh, can do it. But yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful time of my life. You describe... Sorry for the emotion. <laughs> I think that's, that is another part of being a leader that I admire. Yeah. You know, we have this straight jacket idea of the strongman leader, oh. which is so 19th century. Yeah, um, yeah and I'm pretty strong. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would like you to tell us a bit more about your childhood and perhaps how that has shaped who you've become and how, how you now see the world. I, I am I'm the middle of five. Uh, I have a, a, a one brother and, th- and three sisters. And we grew up in a, um, you know, middle class household. My dad, you know, was a police detective. My mom was a teacher. My grandmother used to come during the school year and be with us to help my mom, um, who was working full time. 
And my grandmother was also equally amazing and also an angel. My child was happy. Um, my parents were very strict. They were, I often describe my father as the iron fist and my mother as the velvet glove. That's just how they were. Uh, my mother was actually a more, you should be more fearful of her than my dad. You knew what he was going to do. She was a little bit, she was uh, much more, she, she had a lot more strategy around her discipline. Um, but it was a happy household. We were expected to do well in school. We did. We all read before we went to school and uh, we had books and we did music lessons and ballet and swimming lessons and tennis lessons and, and stuff like that. And my mom was a great, my mom played volleyball and basketball in um, college, and she was a great tennis player. She was not just good. She was a great tennis player. And my daughter played uh, years later, so that was actually kind of cool. Yeah, we um, we had a happy household. There wasn't anything, I, I laugh because like there wasn't anything dramatic about it, except for that we were very close-knit. My parents were from Arkansas and Florida, so there was us in the Washington metro area. And we were a tight nuclear kind of uh, deal. And our parents' fa family would visit from um, other places. And we were always happy when they left. <laughs> we really were. Like we would say, man, we're glad they're gone. And my parents would say that out loud, which uh, even my mom would say it. And she, she, we always thought, you know, and she she was a, a very sweet lady. Uh, so it, we were just very happy just being there, the five five siblings and um, and my parents and then my grandmother for part of the year. And I would say that was it was really unremarkable in that we were expected to do well in school, and we did. And, um, you know, um, we made mistakes. You know, as teenagers, we made mistakes like all teenagers teenagers do. And uh, our parents held us accountable uh, for that, which I, I thank them for to this day. Because I know we turned out well and are probably good parents because of that. We had great models uh, of, parent, of parenting. But I think my childhood was pretty unremarkable. For some people, it may be remarkable. For me, it just seems, you know, that's just how we grew up. So what has shaped your views, perhaps, and value system around a philosophy of education and maybe the business of education? You know, I think that um, until I became a central office and now a superintendent, I, I didn't really think as much about the business of education. I don't think even as a principal, I even though I ran a really large high school, I don't think about, thought about, and it was a business. I mean, I had to run it like that. Um, but, um, I think that you have to always, for me, always think daily what, what the mission and what the mission is and stay true to the mission and surround your people that are there for the mission. I have, uh, had the opportunity to work with edu hucksters. <laughs> I read, read, met with a few, I ran with, met with, and work with a few of those and people who were in it for the wrong reason. And I always knew who they were and I always avoided them. Although sometimes I had to work side by side with them. Everything else about my being showed that I didn't approve of the way that they approached the work and I didn't want to be associated with the way that they approached uh, the work. But I certainly have been around them and understood what their motivation uh, is. Yeah. Yeah. We touched a little bit on this earlier. You mentioned data. Mm -hmm. And if we look at the world around us, mm -hmm. Google, Amazon, mm -hmm. Facebook, um, other large retailers, they're using data in ways that 
a predictive, uh, analytical, they, we can, we can observe behavior based around data. I'm, I'm no expert in education, but I feel as if sort of attendance and standardized tests, mm -hmm. this is it. And it seems that there is, we have a capacity for and a dexterity with data that possibly is not being used well by education systems. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering how you think about the use of data going forward. Well, I do, and especially with attendance, right? So I think that we have a lot of brain research around behavioral science that Google, Facebook, and many other, some positive and some nefarious, are using to change behavior. And how do we, so for attendance, uh, we'll be working with a gentleman's name is Todd Rogers, Dr. Todd Rogers. He is a behavioral scientist who worked on a couple of very successful political campaigns surrounding our prior president on micro-targeting and how you change behavior. And then uh, was asked, was tasked to do some of that work with attendance and has been wildly successful changing, helping school districts change attendance behavior by addressing, addressing it as behavioral science. What is the current behavior? What do the subjects think about what their uh, current behavior is? Because that also informs it. It's not necessarily truth, but you need to understand how they consider their, uh, their, their current behavior and then how to micro-target the changing their behavior. First of all, giving them good information about the actual versus perceived, uh, and then um, uh, helping them understand what the goal really should be, and then for the, to help them internalize how reaching the goal is going to be is going what the value is to them. If you think about our initiative around 95% attendance, it's not really mine. Attendance works came up with it a long time ago with that's the metric that's tied to graduation rate. It's pure and simple. Um, it is not a Sherlock Logan creation. <laughs> and, and how do we help families get to that? Because if you ask, if you look at the bottom, um, the bottom, uh, half of attendees in school and you ask their parents, and this is what, how Todd, um, got his work started. If you ask them, they all say, what, what, how's your child's attendance? They all say, it's good because they don't know what the standard is. Their perception of their child attending over actual is skewed. They're obviously, they're parents. They love their kids and they think that they're doing a good job. And so helping families through that, it's not really unlike how folks target you when you're going to shop online. They come back, uh, because you have, you've, because you've been on a site, for three or four seconds, you have indicated that you may have some interest. And how do you use that same behavioral science to get um, desired outcomes and positively um, impact uh, attendance? It's very similar. They use this kind of the same behavioral science to help families. For good, not Absolutely. to help them buy stuff. <laughs> totally, totally. <laughs> So I accept that this is 
somewhat unfair because you're newly in position. Yeah. So yeah. to ask you about what changes are you going to make, it feels premature. Mm-hmm. I accept that. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if that being said, you sense innovations that might be introduced into the, the school district's way of doing things. Mm-hmm. For example, um, what would it take to reorient the delivery of education around the learner mm-hmm. and not around adults or policy or funding? Mm-hmm. There's data we know, for example, that tells us having a later school day makes much more sense mm-hmm. for most teens and, and, and their success in absorbing information. But we don't do that for reasons unconnected with the learner's experience. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if, even if it's early or maybe incipient at this point, but if you have a sense of maybe some innovations that you have on your radar. Well, I think the first one is really around attendance. So that one is on my radar and in process right now. In terms of your previous statement around, you know, I, I, I reject that because it's the number of hours that kids need to sleep, not the time. So how do you change that behavior um, where where kids are sleeping enough so that they are ready to be available learners? Um, I do agree that kids need to sleep a certain number of, of, of hours and how we think about that. And that we also, you know, typically that's something that's coming from uh, one set of parents whose children don't have to work after school and do not have familial responsibilities and obligations after school. And, you know, there, one, one set of group driving the narrative for a whole nother set of kids who are precariously placed is something that I think we have to consider, right? So I think that that just applies to education policy writ large and that you typically do have the loud and mighty <laughs> who want to set education policy that may affect this whole nother and much larger set of children and may impact them in ways that they're not anticipating because it's not part of their world. And that's why you have to, you need to have folks who are kind of like looking at, at everything when you're thinking about policy. And I always say, what's the worst intent of a good policy? And that you have to always, you know, think about, okay, well, if we implement this, what's going to happen to all of these, all of these other pieces that get in? To your first point around uh, student-centered policymaking, I have always, I've always led, led in that way. Frequently when I meet with a team, we were meeting about something and we're having this discussion. I'm like, no, 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 no. How's this going to impact students and families? And if we can't, when we get to that, then we can work backwards because, um, you know, we many, many school districts say children first and whatever, and then they make all these poli- uh, adult centric policy decisions and implement policies where it's very adult centric. And, uh, you know, working with our team um, and, you know, I don't know what they did before, so I can't, you know, I'm not uh, trying to, to say they didn't do this before. But I know now that I'm saying at every at every policy decision, how is this going to impact students and families? And uh, even though it's not something that affects students directly, somehow kids do always get affected by anything that we do in a system that is built to serve them. You know, if you think about any other industry, you're always thinking about the end user and uh, or the end and this and the end consumer. Uh, and in this case, it's, it's children and their families who are consuming, and um, they they should always be in the forefront of the decision-making. And it doesn't mean you don't take the needs of others into consideration, but who do you take? Who's first? 
I want to read something from the World Herald. So, so this is from an article in the Omaha World Herald, mm-hmm. and the quote is, Susie Anderson, president of Service Employees International Union Local 226, mm-hmm. which represents OPS support staff, mm-hmm. said she was ready and excited to work with Logan. We're ready to be Loganated, she said. How would you describe the experience of being Loganated? Well, I'm not sure because I live Loganated, but um, I don't know. I, I laugh. I told I told uh, Ms. Anderson, I'll call her Ms. Anderson on the radio, but Susie, that when I was a high school principal, my kids used to call me the Loganator, right? So that's where it came from, right? So my, my students would say, like, I, I actually went in and did a turnaround in a school. So I did, I mean, it was, it was massive and a change, you know, on steroids and probably my, my best work I've ever done. Just, just, I had a great team and it was, it was, they masterfully executed the change of that school. And, um, the kids call me the Loganator. They also would call me if they would see me coming in the hallway, they would say, here comes Cheryl. And that used to tickle me. So like the people with the teachers that were really upset about it. And I thought it was fantastic. Um, because you know, they identified with me, you know, being around and visible all the time. And I think that that probably is that, that to have a person who, uh, uh, a person who, at least for, 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 for what she's saying is that, you know, presence and present, um, is really, I think, what all people want in a school district. When I have, when I see the superintendents who have, I think, have made the most impact, they have felt very present. Not necessarily physically so, but that they are attending to the right things, the things that impact children. Um, they are taking care of staff. When they have to make hard decisions, they are willing to explain them. They don't hide. And I think that so far that's been our experience. I meet with that uh, particular bargaining unit once a month and we do have kind of frolicking fun meetings. They are really fun and we laugh a lot at different stuff. And it doesn't mean we don't uh, uh, have serious things that we, we have to discuss, but we also have, we share more things in common than will ever likely ever ever divide us. And when I brought up something that was concerning me about a building that I had been in and we kind of laughed, you know, I laughed about it. And then the next meeting, one person said, you know what, I've been paying closer attention to this because of it. And I'm like, yeah, right. That's right. Because that's going to impact, you know, the way that your school looks. And I've been to your school and it's spotless, right? So if yours is that way, that's how it should be for the people that you're leading in this case on a bargaining unit. And, uh, if, if that's what it means and I'm, I'm good with it, I hope that's what it means. <laughs> At least that's what it means to me. But I hope that, um, Susie and, and others and everyone, and especially the, the children I serve, uh, feel present, feel that I'm present, um, and paying attention to what their needs are and attending to those, um, in a way, um, where they will feel the impact. Well, I feel loganated and grateful. Oh, grateful gosh, for that. bless your heart. <laughs> <laughs> You're the one. <laughs> Life. 
Lives Radio Show is supported by Humanities Nebraska, inspiring and enriching personal and public life by delivering opportunities to engage thoughtfully with history and culture. Learn more at humanitiesnebraska.org. To listen to this show again and to hear past shows, download the podcast at iTunes, search for Live's radio show with Stuart Chittenden, and leave a review while you're there to let me know what you think of the show. I've been in conversation today with Dr. Cheryl Logan, the superintendent of Omaha Public Schools and human. Dr. Logan, (laughs) thank you for being on the show. Thank you. My pleasure. That's the end of this week's show. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life.